0: Well, our subject is secular humanism. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 18, Paul speaks about how the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. I think that must sober us this evening. The people we're talking about are suffering under the wrath of God. Because in their minds and in their conscience, they know the truth. They know that there is a creator. But they deliberately and willfully erase that creator from their mind and from their lives. And they put man where God ought to be. Because of this, Paul says three times in the passage that we've read, Romans chapter 1, that God has given them up. Romans chapter 1 and verse 24, God gave them up to uncleanness. Verse 26, God gave them up to vile affections. Verse 28, God gave them over to a reprobate mind. The righteous wrath of God against sin is demonstrated in many ways in this world and in eternity. But I think that one of the most damning and dreadful forms of the expression of that wrath must be when God totally abandons a soul to that soul's fate. God has given them up. So this is a deeply regretful examination, sorrowful and solemn examination of what has become the de facto national religion of this nation, secular humanism, the godless philosophy that exalts the human condition and that elevates man, the human person, into the place in our lives that rightly belongs to God, who is our creator. You're listening to the Semper Reformata podcast with Bob McAvoy. there's always been unbelievers and atheists and sceptics. So when we talk about humanism this evening, what I want to do is to do a very brief historical sketch. And then I want to look at the beliefs and practices of modern humanism. Let's do our historical sketch first. Let's go way back in time and think of ancient humanism. You probably won't have heard of a famous Greek philosopher. I know you'll have heard of Socrates and Plato and people like that. I wonder, have you heard of Protagoras? Protagoras lived from 490 to 420 BC, and he's reckoned to be the early father of humanism. His life principle was, and I quote, man the measure. So he made mankind the centre of everything. He removed all the religious and civil and social restraints of his day. And everything that was accepted as the norm was up for debate and questioning. And his ideas at that time led to a flourishing of art and drama and mathematics and politics And Greece became the so-called cradle of democracy, the beauty of its language, the richness of its culture, known as the Golden Age. But all that was to end. The fall of the Roman Empire, the rise of Islam, the advance of the Roman Catholic Church led to the medieval period, to the Dark Ages, the descent into superstition and widespread ignorance. The Roman Catholic Church preached works salvation, demanded payment and penance to escape the horrors of purgatory, and the joy of life was swallowed up with the fear of the afterlife and vain attempts to buy a way into heaven. And there were endless Flagellations and self punishments and pilgrimages and penances and monasteries and covenants and vows and life on this earth became sheer misery. Then came the Renaissance. In the 15th century, some teachers of Latin, remember. Latin was needed for the Catholic Mass, and the Bible was in Latin. People taught Latin. They called themselves humanists, these Latin teachers, and they began to yearn for another golden age, a time when maybe people's lives would have more meaning, when they could live beautiful lives, when they would be, relieved from the harsh burden of superstitious Catholicism and they began to learn Greek as well as Latin and they began to read the classics and they tried to live a life of happiness and they took pleasure in things that were good and worthy in this world things that God in his common grace had created for us to enjoy Os Guinness speaking of the renaissance wrote the renaissance was an intoxicating phase of humanism explosive confidence of the human mind the celebration of art and music and morals and thought and life on an eminently human scale but those humanists were not atheists here's a couple of examples Galileo The Italian astrologer, the man who, with the aid of the newly invented telescope, discovered that the earth was round, that it rotated on its own axis and revolved around the sun, a discovery that cost him his liberty. He was subjected to lifelong house arrest by the Catholic Church for heresy. Christians are often accused by atheists in the media as being flat earthers, aren't they? The kind of people who would throw Galileo into jail today if they had the opportunity to do so. But as R.C. Sproul points out, the Roman Catholic bishops weren't the only ones who refused to look through Galileo's telescope. His fellow scientists were equally sceptical. But of more interest to us is a man called Desiderius Erasmus from Rotterdam. Erasmus, a Roman Catholic, was a professing Christian. He had no love for the Catholic Church. He debated Luther on the subject of free will. He was a self-proclaimed humanist who demanded reform in the Catholic Church, mercilessly ridiculed and satirized the Catholic clergy with their loose morals and their lack of basic intelligence and their opulent lifestyles and their wealthy patronage. And as a student of all things classical and Greek, Erasmus produced a Greek New Testament translated from the Latin texts. And that New Testament became the basis of Martin Luther's later work. Erasmus Popularized books and Bible study methods. He never became a Protestant, although he did die in 1536 in Switzerland on the 12th of July. I don't know whether that's any significance at all, but his contribution to the Reformation should not be underestimated. Let's move on a little bit in history. Because the next stage of humanism is much darker. Talking about the enlightenment, so called, in the 18th century. And humanism is making a strong comeback. One of the factors in the 18th century influencing humanist thought at this time is Unitarianism. Unitarians, of course, believe that uh, the Lord Jesus Christ was Not God, that he was merely a man, a good man who died as our example of supreme self-sacrifice. If you imagine that mankind is basically good, if you think that there is no saviour from sin, just a good example in Jesus the man, if you think that there is no afterlife, then of course you're going to elevate your own human reason far past its actual capabilities. I once attended a Unitarian funeral in the village of Money Ray in County Down. There's a very large Unitarian church in Money Ray in the village, and that area was plagued by it. There used to be a wee rhyme that people said of Money Ray Money Ray, good and civil, one God and no devil. That summed up The religion. I went to a funeral service of a relative of my wife, and the minister, some years ago this was, stood by the grave, and he opened his wee book, and he began the funeral service with the words, we have gathered together today to dispose of this corpse. And I thought to myself, well, that wasn't a very friendly way to begin a funeral service. But basically that's what they were doing. They don't believe that there's an afterlife. They don't believe that there's a saviour from sin. If you'd like to know more about the influence of Unitarianism on humanism, then the Christian Institute have an excellent little booklet. I've left some of them in the porch. You can get one on the way out. And it explains how Unitarianism influenced the humanistic thought in the 18th century. One of the leading humanists of that time was a man called David Hume. He lived from 1711 to 1776, a Scottish Enlightenment philosopher, historian, economist, librarian, essayist. Hume argued against the existence of God. He posited that all human knowledge comes only from experience, what we call empiricism. And speaking about God, Hume said that God is no more than a meaningless and unwanted shadow on the face of reason. Now you have it. Humanism getting darker and darker. After the First World War, humanists banded together and began to organize into societies. But the optimistic view that they had of the goodness of man, the innate goodness of man, man born as good and any badness that's in man only coming from a lack of education or opportunity, that idea received a blow with the quick outbreak of World War II, proving that that utopian notion of man as morally good, intrinsically good, was nothing more than a pipe dream. Let's move on to modern humanism. And I suspect that in Northern Ireland, only a very few years ago, few would have known what a humanist was. Organised humanism has made frightening strides here over the past quarter century. Let's think for a moment or two of the way humanism has influenced our society. You get humanists on the media frequently up till about 10 years ago, I would have had fairly regular work on the local BBC. I'd have been on thought for the day. The wee slot that they broadcast during the morning news programme, many ministers did. Most of them, I suppose, would have delivered little moralistic homilies, but there was certainly an opening for evangelicals to be more direct about the gospel. And then it all changed at one point broadcast recording in Orbo Avenue, the studio assistant complained. Complained about me. Complained that I'd included in the script the phrase that Jesus is the only way to heaven. And when I refused to remove it, when I refused to soften it, my days were numbered. Right about 2011 or so, there was a great push for human, by the humanists, for thought for the day to be more inclusive. In January two thousand and fifteen, the British Human Association called on Ofcom to demand more non-religious content as part of its review of the BBC's public serving, broadca- public service broadcasting responsibilities. Now if you still listen to BBC radio and TV, and I sincerely hope that you don't, and I wonder do you pay your licence? Um, well, if you listen to it, you'll know that Christianity is a rare commodity indeed. Humanism is rife on the airwaves. Humanism influences the court system. There have been a number of high profile UK court cases brought by humanist organisations by individuals. They fought in the court for the right to have their clergy, and they do have clergy. Their humanist celebrants registered for marriages just a few years back ago in Northern Ireland. And that now has become an industry with some humanist wedding practitioners. You can look this up on the internet, charging up to £1,200 for a half-hour wedding ceremony in a non-religious venue and a percentage of that going to their licensing humanist society and those humanist societies charging fees for compulsory training for celebrants. Now bear in mind that a minister in a church would marry you for nothing and maybe in a venue outside a church for a few pounds for petrol money, legal responsibilities. Humanists fought to get that market. Humanists have fought to have religious education removed from schools. In America, humanists fought to have the Ten Commandments removed from plaques and statues outside court and government buildings. Humanists influencing our society, influencing uh, the media, influencing the legal basis of society, influencing our schools. Humanists UK boast on their website they advised on the Welsh Government's new curriculum and worked on the UK Government's guidance and regulations on relationships and sex education. Humanists are influencing the education authorities over the sexual education of your children. Listen to this post. Over the years our quote teach evolution teach evolution, not creationism, unquote, campaign has had a string of victories, including evolution being added to the primary school national curriculum in England. Academies and free schools are now forced to teach evolution, and state schools banned from teaching, and this is their words, pseudoscience such as creationism. That's how successful they've been in influencing education. And I mentioned a moment ago that they have their clergy. Maybe you've been to a humanist funeral or a humanist wedding ceremony and you'll see that all references to God are omitted. They have naming service ceremonies the atheistic alternative to what used to be called a christening or a dedication or an infant baptism. They've even replaced godparents with guideparents. They turn up at weddings where you can write your own vows and make whatever promises you like or make no promises at all. And of course it doesn't matter to a humanist whether you're a man and a woman or two men or two women. And funerals. You may have gone along to the funeral of a friend or a relative and discovered that the person at the front is an atheist and there's no mention of God or eternity or heaven or the resurrection day. All of that is replaced with flim flam with meaningless poems and music and songs and platitudes about what a nice person the deceased was. In fact, everything that once was the social function of the organised Christian church can now be done in general society by an atheist celebrant. And it doesn't end there. In London, there's the Sunday Assembly, a humanist church. It meets twice a month, where the hymns are replaced by community singing of pop songs, with a sermon, an inspirational non-religious talk, no doubt very entertaining, since the Sunday Assembly was founded by two comedians, appropriately enough. And they have small groups meeting midweek for mutual support, and that movement is spreading all over the world. In every sense, organized, secular, atheistic humanism is attacking traditional religious values and practices, and especially Christianity. If you have in your library, the book, Does God Believe in Atheists, by John Blanchard, it's well worth getting it down and reading it again. If you haven't got it, you should get it before it goes out of print. John Blanchard identifies three distinct types of modern humanists. He talks about the uncommitted humanists, the agnostics, the people who don't have any view on whether there's a God or not, people who describe their religious un- their religion, on the census form, as none, but who try to be decent human beings, you know, the good living people. And then there's the religious humanists, believe it or not. People like those Unitarians I was talking about earlier. Religious people who don't actually believe in a holy, transcendent God. People like the late John Robinson, an Anglican bishop who wrote Honours to God and who believed that God was something called the ultimate depth of our being, the ground and means of our existence. The infamous notorious John Shelby Spong, one time Anglican bishop of New York in New Jersey, who was a notorious humanist. You have to ask, how can a humanist remain a bishop and lead a service of worship with an Anglican liturgy that includes the Apostles' Creed that states, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. And then, of course, there's the ones we're thinking of, the secular humanists. In the Middle Ages, the word secular came from a Latin root. It simply meant of this world, so the clergy were divided into the religious and the secular. The religious were those who lived in monasteries and priories, and the secular clergy living in the parishes among the people. And both groups serving the local churches. But nowadays, the word "secular" means irreligious—anything that pertains to life outside of religious experience and religious belief as we shall see. So we have looked at the history of humanism, a very brief history indeed, and we have traced its development from a form of ancient Greek philosophy, from the golden age of Athens and Rome, with its its culture and its language, right down through the years to we've got to where we are today, where humanism, as I've said, has become the de facto national religion of the country in which we live. So what is humanism? A definition, if we want one. Secular humanism is a philosophy, a belief system or life stance that embraces human reason. Secular ethics and philosophical naturalism, while specifically rejecting religious dogma, supernaturalism or superstition as the basis of morality and decision making. So what I want to do is to take the statement of humanist beliefs, and I I tell you they are beliefs. Humanists have beliefs. I'm going to take them directly from their website from Humanist UK, and we're going to examine briefly what the Bible says about those beliefs. Now, we have to be fair. Humanism UK lists their beliefs, roughly speaking. So we have to assume that not every humanist will believe precisely the same thing. But looking at their website and taking their three simple beliefs that they put on their website, We're going to say that humanists, to be a humanist, you must trust the science. And you must base your personal morality on subjectivity. And to be a humanist, you have to have a pointless life and a meaningless death. Let's look at those three things. Trust the science. Here's a statement directly from humanist website. A humanist trusts to the scientific method when it comes to understanding how the universe works and rejects the idea of the supernatural and is therefore an atheist or agnostic. Here's what the Bible says, Romans 1 and 20. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. Being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Well, we know how sensible trusting the science is, don't we? The scientific method. We've had three years of trusting the science. And we found out that when we trusted the science, the science actually was driven by the money or by broader globalist interests but the humanists make an issue out of this they're contrasting science with faith they're creating a false dichotomy that doesn't exist they claim you must exclusively trust one or the other it is science versus faith so I want to spend a moment or two talking about science bear with me What science are we talking about here? Are we talking about computer science? You know, like the science of Imperial College who consistently get things wrong about their scientific computer modelling methods. Does anybody remember foot-and-mouth disease? The amount of animals that were needlessly slaughtered and incinerated does anybody remember covid trust the science or the medical science are we to trust that the so-called life sciences there's no doubt that medical science has made enormous strides forward but with that advance has come the greed of the big pharmaceutical companies maybe the safe and effective vaccines might be an example And then if you want some real science, what about the climate science? It's good. You want some real junk science, you needn't look any further than the climate emergency scientists. The doom-mongering about the ozone layer that went on 20 or 30 years ago when we were all doomed. And the greenhouse gases and the global warming. And the end of the planet has been predicted for decades. By the way, I see the Doom Goblin it is now Dr. Greta. Did you know that? She's been doctored. She's now Dr. Greta Thunberg. It just makes you wonder how far can the Academy stoop and drop in its groveling to the globalists in the, in the United Nations and the World Economic Forum. Imagine giving an honorary doctorate, but then I suppose if Obama can get one, just about anybody can get one, climate science, social science, do we trust that? You know the kind of junk science that gets poured on the unsuspected citizens not just of this country but of the whole world in lockstep by government nudge units and behavioral insight teams can you remember any of that science what about the science that said that you had to wear a mask when you were walking to the toilet in a restaurant but it was all right to sit at the table because the covid only attacks you when you're six feet up what about the scotch eggs what about that science? What about the six-foot of separation and the one-way systems in supermarkets and the dangers, the, the, the fatal dangers of sitting at a park bench, drinking a coffee, or walking your dog? Trust the science. Of course, the humanist might say, well, that's all right, but that's not the science I'm trusting. I'm looking at scientific methodology. What is that? What is scientific methodology? We need to be serious here. Most scientists agree that in order to do science, to analyse data, and to come to informed opinions and conclusions, there are four certain basic assumptions that we need. Now, this is not original. This is just common science that you learn. There are four things we need to do science. Here they are. You need to have a brain. And you preferably need to have eyes and ears because science is all about observation. The most rudimentary requirement to do science is to record data. And to record data, you have to be able to observe, you have to be able to take notice of changes. You have to look maybe through an optical instrument like Galileo did. Maybe you have to use a computer program and that's going to require intelligence and ability to assimilate information and to learn. And in the atheist humanistic worldview, ask yourself the question, how does accidental nothingness develop into a life that has reliable senses? How does that happen? out of absolute nothingness, by accident. Second thing you need in order to do science is that you need the laws of nature to be consistent. Let's take gravity as an example. If you hold something up and you let go of it, it's going to drop. It's going to fall. It's a basic observable law. It happens every time. You can rely on it you drop something, it always falls. <laughs> and if you drop a piece of toast, I can tell you it always falls with the buttered, side down. Work that one out. We consider that a given property of gravity. It always happens. Now, in the atheistic humanist worldview, how does meaningless chaos from which this world, they say, evolved, produce order and consistency like that. And then you need the laws of logic. That's number three. You need to be able to process the observations that you've made. You need to be able to work out what they mean. You need to project their consequences after consistent readings and measurements have been made. Now, in the atheistic, humanistic worldview, how do the laws of logic exist in a world that hasn't got the benefit of logic derived from a creator. And you need, finally, to have objective morality. You need to have honest, truthful recording of the data that you have observed. There's no point in conducting experiments if when an experiment shows a result that we don't like, we simply pretend that it hasn't happened. Can you imagine the disaster that would be? Imagine how catastrophic it would be if we were to conduct clinical trials, let's say on a new vaccine, for talk's sake. And during those trials, discovered that our new vaccine was causing illness in some of the volunteers, maybe causing sterility in others. And and imagine if we were to, instead of halting the trials and, and pulling the vaccine Imagine if we just simply covered up the results just so we could make a few extra million pounds. Isn't it a good job that would never happen? Honesty, truthful, accurate recording of results requires a basic level of morality that has to exist before recording the experiment can even begin. Now, in an atheistic humanistic worldview, how does postmodern subjectivity and random evolution produce morality that will reject untruthfulness and dishonesty? So, the point of science is to observe and experiment and explore, to seek facts based on objective proofs. It's the systematic knowledge of the physical world through observation. And there are certain assumptions that we must do. And the only worldview that properly addresses those prerequisites is a Christian one. Because it is God who gives us the ability to think. It is God who created our brain. For Romans 1 and 20 tells us, that the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. Wanna do some biology, some life sciences? Start with Psalm one hundred and thirty nine. I am praise thee, I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. We need the laws of nature to be consistent. Christians believe and know that the world is meticulously regulated by divine decree and function. Do you know why it is that if you lift a piece of paper like that and you drop it, it's going to fall? Because God has decreed that it would be so. Here's why. Colossians 1 and 17. By him all things consist. Jeremiah thirty three twenty five. Thus saith the Lord, If my covenant be not with day and night, and if I have that appointed the ordinances of heaven and earth, even if we don't believe in him, he never changes. He remains eternally unchanging, immutable, and totally consistent. 2 Timothy 2 and 13, If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. It is the Christian worldview that is most consistent with scientific methodology. The laws of logic, processing information, Isaiah 1 and 18. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. The capacity to reason is a command for us to exercise a God-given capacity. And objective morality, where does it come from? from God who cannot lie. My conclusion is that the humanist who says that he bases his life and his observations on science is totally deluded. Because true science is only compatible with a Christian worldview informed by the scriptures. Science depends on a biblical worldview. Here's my final word on science. They tell you to trust the science. I'm saying don't trust the science. Trust God. And question the science as the scientists seek to discover more and more about their field of interest and about this amazing world that the Lord has created for us, trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not onto thine own understanding. So the first belief of humanism is trust the science. The second is base your personal morality on subjectivity. I'm going to have to try and hurry up here. But here's my second humanist belief and I'm taking it from the humanist website. They say a humanist makes their ethical decisions based on reason, empathy, and listen to this bit, and a concern for human beings and other sentient animals. Now what about that? Romans chapter 1 and verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Verse 23. They changed the glory of the uncorruptible God. That's the image of God in us too. Into an image. Instead of being in the image of God, listen to what they've done. Into an image made like to corruptible man, there's your measure of man, and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. When you make an ethical decision, what basis do you make that decision on? Here it is. It's the Bible. It's the inspired word of God. It's the law. It's our moral compass. What have humanists got? Man, the measure. Remember that ancient Greek, Protagoras. What happens when you measure your ethics against other men? Well, we call that shifting sand morality. And I'm borrowing that phrase from the words of the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, where he says... The sand, the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell. Great was the fall of it. That strange statement, a concern for human beings and other sentient animals, isn't that a fine example of what Jesus was talking about? In the humanist worldview, based on postmodern and evolutionary ideas, a man or a woman is simply a member of the animal kingdom. The intrinsic dignity of humanity, made in the image of God, is washed away, as Jesus talked about the the the, the, the rain and the floods coming and the winds blowing. It's simply washed away by the ever-rising filthy flood of detritus left behind after the ever-growing erosion of Christianity and biblical morality and marriage and family, respect for human life. Man is nothing more than the naked ape. They've changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like the corruptible man birds, beasts and insects and snakes that degraded view of mankind lies behind the globalist agendas world health organisations so called one health agenda when you hear that Not just interested in the health of people, men and women and boys and girls, but encompassing and including the future health prospects of humans and beasts and the environment. We are, to the humanists, just another form of sentient animal. But Christians have concern for the created world. Of course we do. We love and care for God's world in all respects, but Humanism is advocating, basing our ethics, or morality on a form of utilitarianism. The view that morality and ethical decisions are determined by what course of action will produce the greater good for a concern for human beings and sentient animals. How is the greater good measured? What is the greater good the greater good helped when we were forced to wear masks to protect others. Forced to stay away from nursing homes to make sure we don't kill granny. Forced to take the experimental vaccine for the greater good. Forced to show your vaccine certificate going into a restaurant for the greater good. Forced to keep your children out of school for the greater good. Morality based on shifting, sh- sinking, shifting sands some of the modern examples of this in scotland the land of john knox and the covenanters we rejoice that the first minister nicholas sturgeon has resigned it was after a modern day farce her parliament her woke godless leftist parliament brought in a law to allow people to change their gender, as if such a thing were even possible, simply by self-certification. And that resulted in a national outcry. The practical outworking of that was that a male rapist, a man with male genitalia, dressed up as a woman and wearing lipstick, demanded to be moved to serve his sentence in a woman's prison. Thankfully, the people of Scotland saw through it. So Scotland needed to elect a new First Minister. And, of course, one of those standing for office, as we know, is Kate Forbes, who said on TV that she didn't agree with same-sex marriage. On ITV News, on the 24th of February, A reporter spoke about Kate Forbes having, I quote, unconventional social views. Now, what were those unconventional social views? Basic Christian morality that were mainstream just a decade or two ago. Christian marriage, sexual abstinence, those things are now unconventional shifting sands that are being blown about in the winds and in the gales of this day. And here in Northern Ireland we've got an example. An example with a Californian twist. I'm sure you've heard over the past few weeks the song and dance on the media that has been made over short film made in northern ireland called an irish goodbye it's won an oscar and several other awards now it's not a film that i would encourage you to watch some of it's crassly offensive but the young actor who played the lead role has been fated by the hollywood elites not just for his acting but because of his diversity after all That's what these award ceremonies are all about, isn't it? Diversity. And he ticks that box because he was born with Down syndrome. Now, let's stress very carefully, I'm not a judge of acting talent, and I have no doubt that the young man is an excellent actor, and I have no doubt that his award is well-earned and well-deserved, but here's your example of shifting sand morality because the same people who were congratulating him at the Oscar ceremony and singing happy birthday to him, I'd wager to a man, all of them left-leaning liberals have this belief that people with Down syndrome should be put to death in their mother's womb for the crime Of having a genetic disability. How sickening is that level of hypocrisy? Mm -hmm. And what will the next decade bring? Paedophiles, sorry, minor attracted people having the right to marry children, or incest being relabeled as it has now been by some eminent professors so that it becomes intergenerational love, sexual love. What are the humanists going to do then in their swamp of sinking sinking and shifting, adjustable, adoptable moral standards, measuring themselves against other men? Atheist ethics is a swamp because without God and his word anything goes when Romans when Paul wrote Romans chapter 1 and verse 18 he gave two descriptions of atheism he talked about godlessness and unrighteousness those two words tend to make us think of the Ten Commandments they're made up in two sections, the tables of the law. Godliness, our obligations to God, the first table. The second table, our obligations to our neighbour, honouring our parents, abstaining from murder, sexual morality, th- abstaining from faith, theft, from lying, from covetousness, how we live out our righteousness before man. The ungodly man or woman cannot live righteously because the most basic relationship of all has been destroyed, the relationship between man and his creator. Finally, my third point as far as humanist beliefs is concerned is that the humanist must have a pointless life and a hopeless death. Humanist believes. Again, according to their own statement of belief on their website, they actually say a humanist believes that in the absence of an afterlife and any discernible purpose to the universe, human beings can act to give their own lives meaning by seeking happiness in this life and helping others to do the same. So the humanist describes the meaning of life as seeking for happiness. Something you have to do. You have to search for fulfillment in this life and we know there's a problem with that. And the big problem, the elephant in the room is that this life's going to end. And that thought will eventually bring terror to the person who has no hope for eternity even if they try to blot that out of their minds. Again, back in Romans 1. Paul teaches us that every one of us knows there's a creator. It's blatantly obvious, even to the most fanatical atheist, because God has given us a conscience and he has shown us his glory in creation, which could not create, exist without a creator. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. There's this conscience clause and there's the evidence of the created world. And to try to blot out the reality of eternity is a serious mistake. Do you know there's a whole book in the Bible written to prevent us from falling into this humanistic error. The book of Ecclesiastes. A book that seems at first sight to be full of despair, but is in fact driving home the truth that a life that is lived without God, a life that is lived for this life only, is a meaningless and pointless existence. Purposeless lives, hopeless lives, Vain lives, lives that cannot have happiness and cannot have satisfaction. In Ecclesiastes, the word vanity occurs over and over and over again in reference to a life that is lived purely under the sun, lived without God, lived for this life only. Ecclesiastes 2 and 11, I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought and the labor that I had labored to do. Behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there is no profit under the sun. Imagine the futility of the humanist worldview. Seek happiness in this world. Get your satisfaction in your work. Get your satisfaction from business and pleasure and possessions and labor And yet all of those pleasures are dulled and ruined by the knowledge that this life will eventually end. That the sword of Damocles hangs over you with a gossamer thread ready to snap death and its horror and the open grave just waiting to swallow you up. Ecclesiastes 9 and 5 For the living know. That they shall die. And time marches on, and old age comes, and the pursuit of earthly pleasure ends, and joints stiffen, and appearances change, and aches and pains take over from the vigors of youth. Ecclesiastes chapter twelve says, Remember now thy creator, and the days of thy youth. While the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, when I shall say I have no pleasure in them. And this aspect of secular humanism is truly satanic. For not just content with having a purposeless life and a pointless death, the humanist must try to persuade others to live similarly meaningless lives. So, let's just finish. A few thoughts. Don't confuse humanism with humanitarianism. That word has been claimed by humanists, but there's a broader meaning. Humanitarianism encompasses the desire for the welfare and well-being of our fellow men, something that Christians believe and practice as we demonstrate the love of Christ for our neighbours was Christians who invented hospitals, civil liberties, freedom of religion, abolition of slavery, proper respect for women and children and unborn babies, condemnation of sexual perversion, contributions to literature and art and music and the greatest humanitarian cause of all, the eternal salvation of undying souls. And finally, humanism is anti-intellectual. My contention is that humanism is itself a false religion, a religion that makes a person the god of their life, a false God, and if you don't mind me saying it, that is just plain daft. A man who believes that he's here by accident that he came from nothing, that he's going nowhere, and yet at the same time believes that his earthly journey through life is of immense importance and value. What a contradiction upon which to base your life's philosophy. Romans 1 and 21. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, it became vain in their imaginations their foolish heart was darkened professing themselves to be wise they became fools rc sprawl writing in table talk magazine in october 1993 wrote this and "I quote secular humanism is one of the stupidest beliefs Ever concocted. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please help to make it better known by opening the podcast app on your phone or mobile device. Then, search for The Semper Reformata Podcast. Subscribe and give it a 5-star rating. See you next time.